The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weary or weak. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I'm going to quit smoking this year. I'm going to spend more time with my family and friends this year. I'm going to get out of debt this year and really get a stronghold of my finances this year. Hey, this year I'm committed to helping more people. I want to be a good Samaritan, be more intentional about it. This year I'm, I'm going to travel more than I have in years past. This year I'm going to get a gym membership and I'm going to work out, at least in January and May. <laughs> These are just some of the many New Year's resolutions that people make year after year after year. And they make them with good intentions. And they make them for the right reason. And the reason generally is because they want to become stronger. They want to become stronger as individuals. They want to become stronger in an area of their life. They want to get a stronger grasp on their life. And so in an effort to become stronger, they'll inevitably try to add things to their life that they're not currently doing, which will make them stronger. Or they'll subtract something from their life that is keeping them from being stronger, from being the strongest that they can be. And these are all admirable. But if you're like 92% of the rest of the U.S., you won't make it out of February alive, at least not with your New Year's resolutions intact. I understand that these are important things to do, and it's good for us to have goals. It really is. But my question is, what about our faith? What about, what about becoming stronger in our faith? What's our commitment to growing in our faith? Each one of us wants to be stronger. I've never met anybody who says, I just want to be subpar at best. My goal this year is to be horrible. Each one of us, if we will be honest with ourselves and quick to admit it to others, we want to be stronger. I would argue we want to be the strongest ever or at least the strongest version of us that we can be. And our faith should be no different. So why is it that our, that our faith and developing a stronger faith gets shelved over other less important carnal things? Guys, this is, this is such an exciting series that you are stepping into with us. Over the next 12 weeks, we're going to spend each week investigating, studying, and looking at a unique and an individual spiritual discipline that we can begin to implement and employ in our lives so that we can become stronger in our faith. We're going to look at some amazing disciplines Things that I think are going to fundamentally shape and change how we act and move as Christians. How we live out Christ in us. And I cannot think of a greater platform or a foundation to set, a greater discipline to start with than the spiritual discipline of study. And more intentionally, the study of God's word. 
That is a great segue for me to invite every one of you to grab your Bible. I hope that everybody brought their Bible with them today. If you didn't, uh, we've got a couple of solutions. One is we're going to have the words come up on the screens here to my left and my right here in just a moment for your convenience. But more than that, I would love it. If you don't have a Bible, if you just raise your hand, one of our ushers want to bring you a Bible. And these Bibles are a gift from us to you. These are for you to have and to keep. We would welcome you to bring this with you each week. Bring it back with you. Bring a pencil or a pen, maybe some highlighters and a journal or a place to take notes. So as you follow along, you can highlight some things that stand out to you. You can circle some things that maybe don't make sense to you. Write down some of your questions and your observations. We also each week have a bulletin that we have to offer you. And this is an awesome place for you to learn a little bit about what's going on in the life and the ministry of Country Bible Church on one side. But on the other side, it's a place for you to follow along and take notes. And this series in particular, there's going to be 12 unique spiritual disciplines that I think you'll want to, you'll want to catalog and keep with you as you work to grow stronger in your faith. So with your Bibles, open to the book of Psalms, chapter 19. If you're new to faith, or if you're new to the Bible, uh, you haven't been around it in a while, Psalms, the, one of the easiest ways to find it, it's about a third of the way through your Bible in the Old Testament. But if you open to the middle of your Bible, and you hang a left. Just start heading to your left. You'll run into a collection of other books, including uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. You'll find Proverbs. Psalms is actually right before Proverbs. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 19 today. As we do, I want to help us understand a little bit about what we're going to be reading today. What are the Psalms? What is this spiritual discipline of study, specifically studying the Bible, that we're going to be talking about today? I'm glad you asked. It's important that you ask those kinds of questions. And so let me answer the question that everybody wants an answer to. Psalms is a collection from multiple authors of prayer. It's a collection of spiritual hymns, songs of rejoicing, and pleas, cries for, for help. Psalm is written as a collection and it became widely popular in the church around the second century. Today we're going to read a, a psalm from King David. And he wrote this and he wrote it with the intention of a choir master or a choir director to accompany the psalm or the hymn. This one is a, is a spiritual hymn, a song of rejoicing. And it was to be read aloud while instruments played in conjunction with the psalm. This, this, in, this psalm in particular that we're going to read is broken up into three different ways. The first six verses, 19 verse 1 through 6, is a collection of thoughts about the creator God, about the sovereignty of God, about the power of God. And it's a look uh, at, at God as creator and, 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 and what that means to us. And he specifically highlights the use of the word son, S-U-N, not the son of man, but the son, as in the created light, warmth, creator, all of that. And when you look at it, David does a brilliant job of uh, recognizing, giving praise, celebrating the sovereignty and the, uh, the beauty of God in creation in the first six verses. In verse 7 through verses 11, this is what we're going to be studying today. This is a collection of David categorizing and identifying for us what the Spirit of God tells him about what the Word of God is. 
We're going to read together words like commandment, commands, law. Each one of these are unique words that, that, that all carry the same meaning. And we'll get in, into that here in just a moment. But what I need you to know, if you're taking notes, this is a great place to write down that what we're going to learn from verse 7 through verses 11 is we're going to be looking at five descriptors, five characteristics about the Bible, about God's holy written word. Five descriptors or five characteristics about God's word. We're going to look and we're going to ask three questions. What is it? Why does it matter to me? So not only are we going to learn the five characteristics about the word of God, but we're going to ask the question and answer the question why it should even matter to us. And then on the tail end, we're going to finish the message today with asking, how can I apply what I just learned today to my life? How can I apply what I just learned about the word of God and the characteristics of God's word and why it matters to me to my life? As we read these characteristics, we're going to learn five characteristics. We're going to see one attitude, as in what our observed attitude should be about the scriptures, about the Holy Bible, about the Word of God. And then we're going to finish it with three living examples about the Word of God. As we do this, I really, really, really want to invite you in to a journey. Not just today, but a 12-week journey. Make it a priority in your schedule to be here over the next 12 weeks as we learn to grow stronger together in our faith. And we're going to start off with a word of prayer, but I want to point out something as we begin to pray. The last three verses in Psalm 19, 12, 13, and 14, are David's prayer. They're David's plea. That they'll take, that God will take what, he, what he's declared about the sovereignty of God, the amazing God, the creator God, as well as the five characteristics, the five reasons that it matters in the three examples. And then on the back in the last three verses, it's David's prayer that God would give him the strength that he needs to live out the life that he's called to live. If you've been a part of our church, our body, our community for any time, you've probably heard me pray a prayer that comes straight from Psalm 1914. I want to read it, and we'll pray. Psalm 1914 says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, that is my prayer this morning, that as we spend these few moments collectively together, gathered that your word would come alive in us. Oh, Father, I desire so much for each person that's in this room or that's watching online that, had, that has ears to hear. Maybe they're going to hear this on Tuesday as it's being replayed. I pray, Lord, that there would be a stirring within them, a deep desire, a yearning, a passion to study the Bible, to study your word. And Father, I do pray, as David prayed, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy to you, that they would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. My prayer is that I would decrease and that you would increase, that my voice would be quieted and that your voice would reign. God, may your word wash over us. Meet us where we're at, Holy Spirit, and take us through changing of our hearts where you want us to go. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, so we're going to study Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to give you plenty of time to take down notes as we go, to scribble what you're learning, some questions that you have, and I am excited for you and for me in our time together today. So let's start with verse 7, Psalm 19. 
The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. There's a few things that I want to point out even now as we just come out of the gates together. First is you're going to hear words, descriptors, qualifiers like instructions, decrees, commandments, commands, and law. The word in the original Hebrew language for instruction is the word Torah. Torah is the collection of books in the Bible that you get from the onset. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah literally means the law. And it is also known today as the Mosaic Law. The reason that we call it the Mosaic Law, or that that's an identifier, is because this was the law that was given from God to the Israelites through Moses. The Mosaic Laws. Some things that we need to understand about the Torah now. We look at the law, and let's, let's get a New Testament feel for the law. A lot of New Testament believers want to say, well, I'm saved by grace, not by the law, so they, that, that sin can't be counted against me. And yes, praise God that we are saved by grace, not by works, not by the law, that we have a new covenant, not the old covenant. But let's not forget what Jesus says. I haven't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came to be a living embodiment of the law. And if Jesus used language about the law that said he is a living embodiment and he came to fulfill the law, then we need to lean in whenever we start talking about the law. The Torah does more than just qualify the word of God. When we read commandments and commands and decrees and testimonies and instructions, the root word is almost exclusively the same. It's unique. They've got some distinctive characteristics, but it's collectively paralleled around the same idea. And that is that these are the spoken words of God, holy and inspired, recorded, inerrant, free from flaw, which we'll learn about here in just a moment. So when you see instructions or you see Torah, we know that this is the very word of God or the very words of God. The third thing that I want to point out to you has to do with the person of God, the nature of God, the characteristics of God. David gives us some qualifiers, but what I need us to know is that the more we study the word of God and we learn attributes and qualities and characteristics about God, the more we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is, which means we grow in our relationship of God. And that's important, that we continue to grow in our relationship with God. Far too often in the church, people will come and they'll pray the sinner's prayer and they want to get out of jail free card so that they don't go to heaven, they want to go to hell. But they leave their relationship at the altar and they move on with the rest of their life. Can you imagine what that would have looked like if I had done that to my wife on our wedding day? I mean, just think about those vows for a moment. There we are at the altar. I've got Stacy with me. And as we're going through our vows, I say, hey, listen, I'm declaring to you today that I love you. And if it changes, I'll let you know. I don't remember that in our vows, do you? And what I do remember was, I was a hot mess. You threw up like 14 times. And we stood there and we exchanged covenants, commitments between God and one another. Things like, I promise to love you, to honor you above all others, forsaking all others for you alone. That I'm going to care for you in sickness and in health, for better or worse. For richer and, in our case, poorer. Uh, I, I, we committed to, to love one another and that we would never own a cat. 
Those kinds of things, the important things. Let me also tell you what didn't happen on my wedding day. I didn't stop learning about my wife. And in the instruction manual that I didn't get on my wedding day, who knew that what she liked 15 years ago would change today? I've had to continue to learn her. And she's had to continue to learn me. And that sounds really weird when I say that I had to study my wife. But I'm a work in progress, and this is a case study. I continue to learn. I continue to grow. But you used to like Mexican food, but I don't anymore. Why? Because I had it too much when I was pregnant, and I threw up, and now I don't like it anymore. So you're not eating Mexican. Okay. So Fernando's is out? Yes, Fernando's is out. Oh, God help. Likes and dislikes and person, I mean, down to even person, things change. What she used to think that I did that was cute, she doesn't find funny anymore. <laughs> Wish I would have known that. When we first got married, I thought the greatest thing ever was sneaking up behind her and smacking her on the butt. She didn't seem to mind it. I do it today and I'm picking up the pieces of my head for the next hour. She doesn't like to have her butt slapped anymore. And I have had to be like Pavlov. I've had to be reconditioned. I see her in the kitchen. I just start salivating. I, like, I know what's going to, but now I know if I slap the butt, I'm slap the fat. Like, it just doesn't, what's a lose, lose. <laughs> I really should start preaching from notes. <laughs> Holy buckets. Listen, what I'm trying to say is that I didn't stop I didn't stop loving Stacy just on the wedding day. And I didn't stop learning about our relationship. And I didn't stop growing in our relationship. We are, by the grace of God, so much better and further along today than we were 15 years ago. I can't imagine what our marriage would look like today if we stayed stuck in November 16th, 2002. You laugh. I've got six kids. I don't even remember my own birthday, let alone all theirs. I'm like, you go to the doctor. What's their birthday? Uh, yes. What do you mean, yes? Uh, we'll go with uh, March. Seems to be a lot of birthdays in March. It's in March sometime. Okay, March what? I don't know. It's either going to be the 19th, the 22nd, the 23rd, the 30th, 28th. I don't remember. We're, she's even, my wife Stacy's even training our two-year-old Brienne to know it's March 19 because daddy's going to forget. I've continued to work at understanding Stacy. And I want to tell you, all jokes aside, that I am better as a man, as a husband, as a father, and as a follower of Jesus because she's continued to get to know me. And we've grown in this marriage relationship together. We're better together. And we're better today than we were 15 years ago. I'll argue we're better today than we were yesterday. And we weren't bad yesterday. Where God is concerned no different. We're going to get out of that relationship what we put into it. And so I don't want us as Christians to settle with, I surrendered my life to you in a prayer and I'm going to leave it at the altar and just trust it when it comes time for judgment to meet my maker that, I, that it was just enough. I want to know my God. I want to know the God that I gave my life to. I want to know the God that I fully surrendered to, that I made Lord of my life. I want to know what pleases him and I want to know what displeases him. I want to know what makes him tick. I want, to know, I want to know him because the Bible says that we're created in the very image of God. And so it only makes sense then that the more I know God, the more I understand about me. 
You see, when we walk out into the mall or into a restaurant and somebody gets to know me or they see me and my son side by side, they'll say, wow, you are so incredibly blessed. You look just like your dad. And I'm like, yes, he is. Or they'll say, where did you get your athletics and your music ability? And I'll say, genetics. And inevitably, they always say, yeah, praise God for his mom. (laughs) And I concur. But here's what I'm telling you is that when, in the same way that somebody says, hey, you look just like your dad, I want, I desperately desire for people to say that about my faith. Hey, you look like Papa God. You look like a Christian. You have the same smile as your Papa God. The things that trouble God's heart trouble your heart. The things that drive God drive your heart. The things that inspire God inspire your heart. And the only way that we're going to know Papa God like that is if we study his word. Did you know that was just in the first verse? (laughs) We got 24 minutes to get through the rest. Good news is a lot of football was yesterday, so you're, you're, you're good. Listen, the instructions of the Lord. Here's something else I, I want to point out. It's important that we know this. You see where it says, Lord. Robin, can you put that up there? Uh, you see where it says, Lord. Uh, the, the instructions of the Lord. Generally, that, in the Old Testament, that's going to be all capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a typo. It, it, um, my fault, probably. It should have been all caps. Here's what's important to know about that. Anytime you see the word Lord capitalized. It is reference to Yahweh. And Yahweh is important to know because that stands for creator God. Why I'm delineating this is because we can misappropriate and even misunderstand scripture sometimes if we, if we just read through it haphazardly and don't have some of that context. Uh, example, case in point. Saul, the most famous Pharisee ever known, has a radical encounter in Acts chapter 9 on the the road to Damascus, and there he encounters God. Jesus knocks him to the ground, and this bright light blinds him, and, and, and there's this rumbling and this noise, and people around him, his servants, see, or they hear it, but they don't see it. And Saul has this radical encounter with God, and he says, who are you, Lord? When Saul says, who are you, Lord, he's not saying, you're my God, I've surrendered my life to you as Lord of my life. What he is saying is that you are more awesome than I am. You are more powerful than I am. And it is a term of recognition and respect. But it does not mean that we have surrendered. Let's be careful then that we surrender to the Lord, God creator of our lives, and not just something that's more powerful than us. That leaves too much room for relativism. David clarifies clearly here that the law, the instructions, the Torah of the Lord, in other words, the word of God is perfect. That word perfect in the original language lets us know that what he means is complete. It means it's complete, that there's nothing to add to it and there's nothing that can be taken away from it. This is not an a la carte style faith. This is not an a la carte style book. You can't take what you like and throw out the rest. This is an old country buffet where you go and then you leave what you do when you're full. If you're full, you leave it at the table. It's more likely everybody's ready to go and you're about to puke so you head out and take some cookies with you on your way out. That's not how this works. People sometimes have asked me, hey, pastor, what do you mean when you say that the word of God is active and alive and that it's still being written on our hearts today? Doesn't Revelation say that the word of God is complete and that you should add nothing to it and take nothing away from it? The answer is yes. And David is really clear here when he says the instructions of Yahweh are perfect. They're complete. 
What I mean then as a clarifier so that we can understand and hopefully adopt the idea is when I say that the word of God is active and alive and still being written today, what I mean is that as we encounter God through his word, as we allow the Holy Spirit to change the composition of our hearts through God's word, as we come to understand and know God more and know more of ourselves, it will change our lives and it will rewrite our story. His story will rewrite the way our story ends. So when we read the word of God and we apply it to our lives, it becomes active. Can I tell you that uh, one, of the, uh, one of the very first churches I pastored, I gave a message and I was young and cocky and now I'm just old and cocky. But while I was preaching, I, I made a point and I, as I was preaching, I kind of tossed my Bible like that and I went about. And I had a guy come up and I didn't handle it the best way, but I stand by my convictions. He said, you should never throw the word of God. And I challenged, I said, unless you're living what this says, it's little more than just a leather bound book. If you're not willing to live out what is in these pages, these holy, inspired, perfect, inerrant, flawless, amazing scriptures, then for us who don't want to live it out, it becomes little more than a leather-bound book full of religiosity and ideas. But when we will apply the active living word of God to our lives, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes everything. Many of you here are here this morning because the word of God has changed your everything. So David cries out, the instructions of the Lord, the word of God is perfect and it revives the soul. So I said, we're going to ask five things. We're going to look at five things. We're going to look at five characteristics, what they are. And we have to ask the question, why does it matter to us? Here's why this is so important. When we understand that the word of God is completely perfect, that it is complete and we allow it into our lives, it will revive our soul. That word revive in the original language means to capture our souls. Our soul represents greater than the physical being. Our soul represents the entirety of who we are. Mind, soul, spirit, body. Our soul is the common denominator that ties it all together. When we recognize that the word of God is complete, that it is perfectly complete, and we apply it to our lives, it will capture us and it will change our lives forever. That's why we exist as a church here at Country Bible Church. We exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. That's what happens when you allow the word of God to take form in your life. It will change your life forever. It revives the soul. It captures you and it moves you and it molds you into the image of God and it becomes active and alive in us. That's the first characteristic and the first reason why it matters to us. The second is found on the latter part of verse 7. The decrees, also the words, the words of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. They make wise the simple, trustworthy. There is no relativism in this. One of the dangers that David faced is a danger that we face today, and that is this idea that truth is relative, that we all come from our own experiences, that we are all byproducts of our own educations, and that as you read it, you should just allow it to mean whatever it means to you. The problem is that it's so short-sighted and grossly misinformed, 
What we, what we need to be careful of is what this world has to offer for cheap imitations. And we'll talk about that here momentarily. But what we need to know is that David, through his own experiences, through his own education, and through, more importantly, the encounter of God in his life, he is saying, look, the word of God can be trust, trusted it's authentic and it's integrous. There's integrity in the word of God. You can believe it. You can take it at face value. I, I strongly, uh, strongly encourage you to question everything else in this world. Question the way you think about the things of this world. Not only do I encourage that, but Peter does in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter when he says, you remember that you are just temporary residents, that you are foreigners, that you are aliens living here in these carnal bodies. But your mind needs to be on the things of God of eternity and as long as we have an eternity mindset we need to question everything in the carnal the one thing we don't have to question is the authenticity and the integrity of God's word so why is that important to us the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple I don't know about you but I just heard Forrest Gump in my mind mama says I'm a simple man yeah yeah, I, I, here's the deal. God is not a God of confusion. God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of wisdom. And he will make wise. Now let me explain the difference between smart and wise. Smart are those people who figure it out as they go based on their own experiences. Wisdom teaches us that we can learn from the experiences of others. I've been way too smart in my life and not wise enough. Now that I'm close to 40, I'm not going to tell you how close next year. This year. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's just pray. <laughs> wisdom. Wisdom says we learn from the knowledge and experiences of others. In this case, David is saying that because of the experiences and the knowledge of God, he makes wise the simple. He clarifies the confusion. He works through the dross and he illuminates the hearts and the minds and he makes it plain for us to see. That is an amazing thing. I know that studying the word of God can be really intimidating. If I were to pull the church, if I were to pull the congregation, I would argue that one of the top three reasons, like family feud, that you don't study the Bible, if you don't study the Bible, is because you're intimidated and because it might be confusing. But what I want to assure you is that the more you dive in, the more you understand culture and context and apply learning aids as you study, God will make wise the simple. He will clarify as he is not a God of confusion. So the second characteristic of the holy scriptures of God's word is that it's trustworthy and that it's integrous. And that matters to us. Why? Because it makes, it makes us wise. It gives us the access to wisdom. Even though we're simple. Verse 8 introduces us to the third characteristic and the third question of why it matters to us. The commandments, also the words, the word of the Lord are right. That word right is upright, bringing joy to the heart. Why, why would David point out? Why do you think that David would point out that God's word is right, that it's upright? And that it brings joy to the soul. Could it be that David saw and that maybe David even experienced contextually what many, if not most of us, experience today? 
I, I talked about it several weeks ago when we did our At My Church series. I would encourage you to go back and look at week one of our At My Church series. Where we talked about why we exist as a church. It was in that message that I introduced us to John chapter 4 and the story of a Samaritan woman at a well and the significance of that story. And I just want to recap little pieces of it right now for us to understand. In that story, Jesus comes, tired from his journey. The disciples have gone into town to get food. Jesus sits by a well. It's heat of the day. The Samaritan woman comes because she's been ostracized and essentially excommunicated from her community because of her life choices. They have this dialogue. This woman identifies him and changes her perspective of Jesus in moments through this encounter. But she begins with saying, what do you Jew want to have to do with me, a Samaritan? You're a guy. I'm a girl. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't have much in common. What is there to talk about? And Jesus says, look, I'm just thirsty. Can you give me some water? And she says, what do you have to draw from this well with? You don't have a bucket or a rope. And he says, if you only knew the kind of water that I have, the living water, you would never be thirsty again. And she begs him Tell me, tell me about this living water. Where can I find this kind of water? Jesus flips the script on her and he says, go home and get your husband. And she says, but sir, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. Not only do you not have a husband, you've been married five times and the man you're living with right now isn't even your man. And she says, you just blew my mind, Jesus. What Jesus was saying is, look, woman, You have gone from one empty well, one shallow well after the next, one cheap imitation after the next, looking to fill a God-sized void in your heart with the things of this world that will never bring you joy, and it's left you empty, longing for more, thirsting for more. Today, if we don't allow the Word of God to fill the God-sized void in our lives, we will continue to go from one cheap imitation after the next, trying to fill a hole that only God can fill. For us, our empty well may look like pornography. For us, our empty well may look like finances. For us, our empty well may look like one broken relationship after the next, after the next, after the next. You fill in the blank, alcohol, drugs, church. I want to warn some of you here this morning that if you're here at church because you're hoping that religion will fill that God-sized void in your heart, you're going to be really disappointed. No religion can fill that God-sized void. Only a right relationship with Jesus Christ and making him Lord of your life can fill that God-sized void in your heart. And that only comes through knowing and understanding his word. This is the most important discipline that we can hear about is the discipline of studying God's word. And I want to talk to you about what he says. He says, the commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. You, I want to encourage you to circle that word joy. Let's talk about it because that's a relative term, isn't it? Joy, joy, we often associate joy with our circumstances. If I were to ask you to be honest about the joy quotient in your life and to draw a grid about joy in your life, it would look like this. It would look like a roller coaster. And I know all too well because there have been seasons in my life where I've experienced depression, where I've had to be treated for depression. I grew up in the Northwest. The Northwest is one of three of the states, Seattle, Washington, and I want to say Vermont or Connecticut. It's on the East Coast. That has the largest rate of seasonal depressive disorder. Imagine seven months 
of the kind of cloudy, gray, yucky, just clouds out there. Seven months of it in Oregon with rain every day. No sun, no exposure to vitamin D. It literally, you don't realize it if you've grown up there, but when you get away from it, the first time I lived outside of Oregon and Washington was in Arizona. <laughs> I understand why David, in the first six verses, describes God like a sun. Warmth, heat, giving light. And Oregon like death. <laughs> Damp, moldy. Listen. Depression is real. Depression is real. And it's not just seasonal depressive disorder. There's other things. There's circumstantial depression. I want to tell you about a season in my life, 10 years ago, December, where I went through a deep phase of depression. It affected every fiber of my being. You see, my wife Stacy and I lost our son Tristan. And it was at his death that I, I could not shake what was going on in me. And I recently had a counselor, I was just talking to a counselor about some different things going on, I mean, just really cool stuff and excited about. And the counselor asked a question about joy. This happened 10 years ago. The question came about joy. Where do you find joy? And in that conversation, I had to search the, the catalog of my mind to figure out what brought me joy. And everything that I brought up was circumstantial. Hunting brings me joy. My dog brings me joy. Watching my dog chase a cat brings me joy. <laughs> Eating brings me joy. Watching the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Los Angeles Lakers, and the Philadelphia Eagles brings me joy. Watching my kids bring... Everything I mentioned was circumstantial. And the, the counselor pushed back and said, but what happens if you don't have a dog? And what happens if you don't have a cat? And I said, yes, God reigns. He said, what happens if something happens to your kid? What happens if... You know, he just pushed, 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 and pushed, and pushed. He said, what happens if you continue to base your joy solely on the circumstances of your life? You will never experience true contentment, true happiness, and true joy. Joy cannot be based on any circumstances because our circumstances change, but the word of God never does. The word of God describes God as being the same yesterday as he is today, as he forever will be. He is the bookends, my friends. He is the alpha and he is the omega. He is the beginning, the end, the author and the perfecter of life. He doesn't change. So when we put our joy in the words of God, it is a sustainable joy. It is a carrying joy and we will find fulfillment in joy. As long as we keep searching the world over for one cheap imitation after the next, we will be void of joy in our lives. I love that David says, the commandments of the Lord are upright and they bring joy to the heart. Let me, I want to read something to you that I found this week. In 1984, a guy named David Christopher Knight Watson. I love that all four of his names were included. He was an Anglican priest in the United Kingdom. J.I. Packer, who is one of the most renowned theologians of the 20th, 19th and 20th century, wrote of David Watson that he single-handedly had more impact over the Christian faith than anybody since World War II in Europe. This man was profound. He wrote many books and had great impact. But in 1984, Diagnosed with cancer and the, the outlook bleak at best, he begins writing a book all about his journey through death. 
And here's what he writes. Here is what David Christopher Knight Watson penned about joy in his life in his final days. Not based on his circumstances, but on the word of God. David writes, as I spent time chewing over the endless assurances and promises to be found in the Bible, so my faith in the living God grew stronger and held me safe in his hands. Listen to the descriptors. This is a guy who knows that his days on earth are numbered. He's dying from cancer, a disease that's going to inevitably take his life. And listen, he doesn't write about the cancer or the joys or the sorrows that he's facing with cancer. He writes about the living word of God. Listen to how he describes it. As I spent time chewing over the endless assurances. Wait, your life's coming to an end and you're talking about assurances. But your life is full of bitterness and pain according to the world, but you talk about promises to be found in the Bible. So my faith in the living God grew stronger and held me safe in his hands. He goes on to say God's word to us, especially his word spoken by spirit through the Bible, is the very ingredient that feeds our faith. If we feed our souls regularly on God's word, several times each day, we should become robust spiritually just as we feed an ordinary uh, food several times each day and become robust physically. And he finishes his thought on growing stronger in Christ through the word with this. Nothing. Nothing is more important than hearing and obeying the word of God. This is a man whose joy was found in his identity in Christ because of the active living word of God and not in circumstances alone. All right, so now we've learned that one of the characteristics is that the word of God is perfect or complete, that it's trustworthy, it's authentic and integrous, that it's upright. Now, listen to what he writes in the second part of verse eight. The commands or the word of God, the word of the Lord are clear Give an insight for the living. Uh, the best word picture I have for this surprised me. Let me elaborate. 15 years ago, I, I went to ask Stacy to marry me. Before I did, I had to learn a lot from a gemologist about diamonds. Just recently, my son Caden and I were at Costco, and Stacy and my girls were shopping, and Caden and I, uh, we were not interested. So we went over to the electronics section and we went over by the jewelry. We were looking at watches and those types of things. And then in the jewelry case over there, we began noticing these diamonds and they were huge. Next to the diamonds was a certificate that was, that was given by a gemologist, which talked about the clarity, the cut, the color, the inclusions, the size, all of that. And Caden asked me, he's like, hey, dad, what is that all about? And I was blown away at just how smart I really am. I said, Caden, let me tell you about this. When it says SI2, it means there's some inclusions. And I began to talk about how these inclusions are, these are, are, are spots that are left. These are, are, are mineral spots that are left in the diamond that at the naked eye you really can't see. But they're not all that bad because they serve as natural identifiers for your unique diamond. And that with a magnifying glass, you can illuminate the, the size of the picture and you can see more clearly and that the cut determines how the light comes in and draws light on that diamond and shines out and that the color and I just went through this whole thing and he's like dad you're really smart I'm like I know I am <laughs> this happened by the way this is the image that I want us to get when we think about the word of God there are no inclusions except you and me we are included in the word and the work of God 
I need you to hear me say that again. The word of God is, in, is infallible. It is inerrant. It is perfect, free from flaw. There is nothing that is, there's no inclusions here except you and me. He includes us in his grace, in his mercy, and in his love. But when David describes here the clarity of God, I want you to think about the most perfect diamond you can imagine. Brilliantly cut, shining lights from every angle, no inclusions, highest quality color. That's what David is talking about here when he says the commands of the Lord are clear. And that's important to us. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because it gives us insight for living. If we know that the word of God is bright, that it is clear, that it is free from flaw, that it is inerrant, and that it gives light, we can lean into it to give us direction and life. He says, David says, it gives insight for living. You want to know about the day-to-day choices that you need to make? You lean into the word of God. You want to know how you should spend your finances? You lean into the word of God. You want to know how to treat your wife or your husband? You lean into the word of God. You want to know how to raise your children? You lean into the word of God. You want to know how to be children who respect your parents? You lean into the word of God. You want to know how you should work as an employer? You lean into the word of God. You want to know how you should act as an employee? You lean into the word of God. You want to know what your outlook and perspective on life should be, what should matter most to you in every decision. You lean into the word of God. It gives us insight for daily living. It is our manna. It is our sustenance. It is where we draw life and and where where we get insight from. I love how specific David is in his word pictures. Now listen, verse 9, <coughs> excuse me, it goes away from the four of the five attributes, and he talks about attitude. Verse 9 starts with this, reverence, that word reverence in the original language is awe or fear. Reverence for the Lord is pure, it's undefiled, and it lasts forever. In other words, we need to be afraid of God and have an awesome God fear that is an awe of God because he is the author and perfecter of life. He does hold the world in his hands. He is the ultimate judge. He is the ultimate jury. He is the one who sent his son and gave us an opportunity at life through uh, the, the death and resurrection of his son and the second coming, the promise that we have. We should be in awe and reverent of that. But what David says What David says is you should have an attitude of reverence. Don't just look at this. Don't just take this lightly. Don't just push this aside as some religious activity. But we should have a reverence for God and for his word. We should have a reverence for his word. And not just to have a reverence, but because it lasts forever. We get to take it with us into eternity. We get to know more about God and we get to take that with us into eternity. We build in our relationship with Jesus and we take that into eternity. It is the only thing that we get to take into eternity. Then David is gonna give another characteristic here. Five of the fifth of five. He says, the laws or the words of God are true. Each one is fair. Why is it important for us to know that the word of God is true? We live in a society, and I don't mean to be, I don't, I don't, I'm going to say this and I don't mean to be callous. I don't really care where you're at with the whole fair play and uh, participation award thing, okay? I'm not here to tell you my opinion on it. But we live in a culture where everything is equal, where everybody gets a participation award, and, and where truth is relative, and where there's this bell curve. 
Now, I'm not going to say that when I was in school, I didn't appreciate the bell curve. I loved the bell curve when I was in school. But when it comes to the word of God, I don't want ambiguity. When it comes to my position with God, I want a level playing field. I want to know like I know like I know who God is, who I am, and what God expects of me. No bell curve, not based on personal or popular opinions, but what the word of God says, because then my actions will be judged fairly. There is responsibilities, there are rewards, and there are ramifications. As long as there's a bell curve in relativism, that is constantly ebbing and flowing and changing. But where the word of God is concerned, it is true, it is authentic, it is integrous, it is complete, it is perfect, not lacking anything. And that gives us the ability to stand on the word of God and view our lives and everything that happens fairly. That should inspire you. Then after this, he moves out of five characteristics and five reasons it matters to us, and he's going to give three examples, three stark, incredibly prolific, profound examples of why this is important. I mean, at first glance, we'll probably miss some of it. Lucky for you, I'm going to go over it with all of us. Verse 10 and 11, the three examples, he says, the word of God is more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. The words of God are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. The words of God are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. When we read this, we get an image of gold, we see honey, and, and we realize, okay, cool, yeah, obeying God's word. But I need us to identify some culture and context here, okay? The original hearers of this would have heard this, and they would have gone, what? This would have taken them back. This would have captured their breath. This would have had them making sure that they were on solid ground, strongly considering what was being said, what was being shared. Let me explain why. Gold was the most precious metal available to them. Gold carried tremendous weight. Gold is used throughout scripture to define something brilliant, something spectacular, something that is expensive and carries a lot of weight to it. You think about the refiner's fire, that the gold goes back into the fire and it's heated and it's melted down and the dross is pulled away. All the imperfections are pulled away. And the imagery is that when it comes out, when you have liquid gold free from imperfections and you look at it, you mirror off of the gold that with which you are staring at with the gold or that it's reflecting. And the idea is that when we come into Christ, we go into the refiner's fire and he pulls us out and he removes the imperfections and then he heats us back up again and he pulls us out and he removes the imperfections so that when we look at ourselves in the gold, we bear the very image of God. Amen. So when David says that the words of God are more expensive, they're more valuable than gold, even the finest gold. Get, get the, the significance, the severity of what they're saying. This is incredible. And honey, I'm not talking about 100 acre woods, Pooh Bear kind of honey. Honey was a life source for them. Honey was valuable in the trade market. Honey was a life giving sustenance for them. Honey fed the, the body. Honey, uh, honey had all kinds of, of social indications to it or social uh, implications rather to it. As far as when you would sit together, you would eat together. The strength that you would draw from honey and they would use honey to trade. 
It represented something valuable to their life. And protection? Protection's a big deal. That the word of the Lord protects us and that when we obey it, we'll be rewarded. Wow. The word of God. The words of God. Do you realize what you're holding in your hand? This has the ability to bring life or death, to change the very trajectory of your life, and to help you understand more than you ever thought imaginable who you are because of whose you are. It is complete, perfect. It is life-giving. It is upright. It is holy. It is authentic and integrous. It's fair. It's useful for teaching, for admonishing, for reproach, for instructing. And when we apply it to our lives, God uses it as a platform from with which it becomes active and alive and he's writing his story in our lives today. My friends, and I don't say that lightly, my friends, I love you. I care about you. The greatest gift that I can give you this new year is a gift of the spiritual discipline of studying God's word. I want to implore you again to make it a priority to come over the next 12 weeks as we learn of amazing disciplines. We're gonna study fasting as a spiritual discipline. We're gonna study simplicity as a spiritual discipline. We're gonna study secrecy as a spiritual discipline. We're gonna study prayer as a spiritual discipline. We are, we're gonna study fellowship as a spiritual, it's gonna be awesome. I, I am so excited, for, I am so excited for this series. But everything is predicated on the very words of God. Every other spiritual discipline we're gonna talk about begins and ends in his holy scriptures.